after a fire, it's moved to Turin, which also happens to be probably one of the most occult places on the planet, which is mysterious to me. No one can understand how the image got there. And there's, of course, no way that the human body could be transposed onto a sheet the way that it was. I find it really fascinating what they've been doing, what they have been doing around this, because it 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 progressively takes it into more and more of a crazy, almost supernatural thing. And so scientists, of course, were baffled how the corpse could have been exposed to such electricity. Like, how could the corpse have been a conductor, basically? Right, right. One of the most famous ancient relics in the world is the Shroud of Turin, which shows the imprint of Jesus's face on a burial cloth. Whereas basically every other significant relic is contested or debunked, this one has never been able to remain debunked. That's because some of the amazing science, some corroboration between Jesus's transformation and things the Buddha said about enlightenment and amazing historical facts. What happens when a human body undergoes a change like that? Is there evidence still on the Shroud of Turin today? When you hear what my remote viewing data said about the Shroud of Turin that corroborates even more of this miracle, I think you're gonna be stunned. So join me, John Vivanco, and investigative researcher Rob Counts for a show that's out of this world. Are you listening to the Metaphysical Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else? Leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. And remember, you've got to like, follow, and subscribe on YouTube, Rumble, Ganjing World, Twitter, and Facebook. John, how you doing? Good. I'm doing really good. Hey, I want to quickly mention, I've got a course, a five-week course coming up in early February. So anyone want to learn remote viewing? It's available for you. It's just on hemispheres.institute. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And you so took the course before. Yeah, this, the course is, is awesome. I'm still actually learning from that course. And some of, I think, what I learned is actually going to get brought up in, in this episode, strangely. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, you know how easy it can be and how difficult it can be at the same time. It's like people get hits, you get hits on it. And then you learn how to access that subconscious part of yourself to like keep pulling it out like you've been doing. Yeah. And not trust your kind of like, I guess you could say notions about things to dictate what information that you're actually getting. Um, But, you know, it's sort of like the reason why John and I even decided to do this whole thing is because research like research with something like remote viewing is very important to get the entire picture of things. And oftentimes, um, you know, I guess even highly contested things like remote viewing, they become a tool where the research corroborates the remote viewing and or vice versa in a really interesting way. And there are things that are beyond human understanding. And I think that's, 
that's why the metaphysical podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, today, um, we're going to be talking about, I think, you know, after a little bit of research on this, the most um, miraculous and just insane uh, miracle in the entire Christian, um, you know, I guess lore, you could say, where we've got this shroud of Turin, uh, the linen that Jesus was wrapped in after being crucified. And it is impossible to debunk this thing. It is. It's absolutely impossible. I mean, people still argue about it, obviously, like they will. But a lot of um, very skeptical people have been convinced, but no idea how, right? No idea how this could possibly happen. Yeah, it's because the science and we'll be going through this in this episode, the science. Every time scientists get a hold of this thing, it ends up it ends up verifying the sh it ends up verifying the relic rather than debunking it and and verifying different information about it that that the history uh of this relic has um a lot of people i think think that this relic sprang up over the last 20 to 30 years because it was um it was made available for people to go see for a certain time um, after I think it was in the early 2000s or the late 1990s. Uh, I think there was maybe a whole year or something that this thing could <clears throat> could be seen or it was a short period of time. And over two million people went to see the Shroud of Turin. And then, of course, there were long periods in between people going to visit this shroud where the shroud actually had to be protected and taken out of light. Uh, just to kind of preserve the relic. Um, but 2 million people went to see it. Uh, and, you know, it is, you know, again, a lot of people, I think, think the shroud sprang up during this time. But actually, this, the first mention that I found of this was in, in 944 in Constantinople by this archdeacon named Gregory Referendarius, crazy name, um, and he gave a sermon talking about Christ's burial cloth. So people knew about this thing. And there is a lineage for this relic that a lot of other relics don't have. Like when you're talking about the Holy Grail or something like that, like this is an ethereal thing. Even the even the Ark of the Covenant, it, I mean, these things have not been put on display. Like people have been searching for them or there's a lot of lore and, you know, different exciting things being passed around about the stories of these relics, but the shroud we have right in front of us. Right. Where was that? I mean, can you see it today? Can you go see it today? Or is this just totally locked away? I'm pretty sure that this is locked away and you're not allowed. You're not readily able to see it, but it is in possession by the Catholic church. Okay. Um, I mean, look at that image where there's an image on the screen right now, the shroud, like it's a full body. It's absolutely Full body boggling, right? I mean, and what so we're looking at, cool. just so that everyone knows, what we're looking at right now on video it, are the negatives of of this body because the the shroud obviously is this beige linen cloth uh, with these stains on it, and then you don't even really see the figure as much as when you're looking at the negative. Right, right, and that, and from what I understand, the the image of the subject on the cloth is is a photo negative image. Correct. Right. 
Yeah, and and so if you look at it, it does. It looks like okay. Well, this could have easily been scrubbed on by a painter. Some type of substance was used to create this uh, human-like figure being, you know, transposed onto this linen. But of course, when scientists for short periods of time were allowed access to this, this was the first thing that got debunked because there was no substances other than the substances you'd imagine to be on this linen that could be detected. I mean, we're looking at obviously blood from a crucified body. Right. So it's like there's there's there are blood marks where his, I think his hands are as well as where the, the, the lore goes that he was stabbed in the side. Right. Right. And by blood marks from those areas specifically. Yes. And, you know, there's there's some blood from the head. There's also bile that's been detected in the linen um, from a human body. And the blood was even tested to see if it was if it was real blood. Obviously, like these scientists aren't just screwing around here. So they they <clears throat> they found that this was an AB blood type, which is the rarest blood type <clears throat> and that there was hemoglobin in there. And some other substances only found in blood. Unbelievable. It's amazing. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. And so they're they're finding these substances. They're verifying the substances. Right. But then they do, like, no scientist for a certain time understood how a figure could be transposed onto this linen. It doesn't make sense. Like, how that doesn't just happen normally, right? Here, no. <laughs> here on screen. Normally. And yeah. he's even got the, the thorn crown crown of thorns on his head that's right so the crown of thorns um on the head and then you can see that there is blood coming on his forehead i guess you could say coming down on his forehead that that was also transposed into the linen right and here what we're looking at on screen is this transition from the shroud into what jesus may have actually looked like in real life like an artist rendering of what jesus may have looked like Right. Yeah. And um, okay. So just a, a few details about the shroud. So when Jesus was crucified, he's crucified, he's hanging there. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus removed Christ's body from the cross. So Joseph of Arimathea was given, uh, was given the okay by Pontius Pilate, who put him to death, basically, um, to take down Jesus's body. So he takes down Jesus' body, and as was a custom uh, in the Jewish culture at the time, they wrapped him in a linen cloth. They also had, you know, myrrh and some other substances, aloes, I think. So they, they carefully removed the body, and they carried him to a tomb that had never been previously occupied. And then, you know, as it said, they kind of said their goodbyes to Jesus and, and, and left and covered the tomb. Now, the shroud of Turin is 53 square feet. Um, and as we said, it shows evidence of the puncture wounds from the spear of Longinus. <clears throat> now, um, the spear of Longinus is the spear of destiny, which is allegedly the spear that punctured Jesus's rib cage and helped him to die faster. Now, there are some people that think that the thrusting of this spear was because one of the Roman 
soldiers was kind of evil and wanted to just, you know, stab Jesus. But actually, there is another story about the Spear of Destiny, which says that it was Longinus, a uh, Roman centurion who felt compassion for Jesus and in order to help him, uh, punctured his his rib cage so that he could die faster. Right. And so indeed, it, it only took three hours for Jesus to die. And it normally, I mean, if you're crucifying someone, this could take hours and hours, even days for someone to die, right? Right, which would pretty much was a common practice back then. <laughs> yeah, I'm brutal. So brutal. Uh, Humans like just more... have no, uh, what is that? I mean, the extreme dark age, it's just no compassion or empathy for others a lot less back then well we're and we're talking about the roman empire right now which is to yeah. date considered one of the most advanced civilizations right before this one and they were base in a lot of ways i mean you're talking about the types of executions and stuff that went on the way that the roman emperors treated people uh, and not all of them were bad, of course. You and I have had this conversation before, but the ones that were bad were like, wow, right, out of their minds, bad, psychotic, right? Especially around the time when Jesus was walking the earth. I mean, we've got a couple of nut jobs like uh, Caligula and Nero on the scene, <clears throat> you know, in there around that time. And they're all just crazy. And then you have like these governors of different areas, like Pontius Pilate, who was the one who sent Jesus to his death. That's why Pontius Pilate is always mentioned, right? Okay, yeah. For those of you that are interested in um, relics, like the one that we're talking about here um, with the Shroud of Turin, we've got a whole series on Rise.TV that goes over things like the Spear of Destiny that we just mentioned, um, the Ark of the Covenant, the Crown of Thorns, uh, Solomon's Ring of Power, this series will blow your mind. It's basically like real life Indiana Jones stories that are just out there for you guys to enjoy and learn the real history of these relics that that we've been thinking about for for uh, gosh, thousands of years now. So definitely check those out. Now, there is a history to the Shroud of Turin, I think needs to be mentioned here just so that you all have an idea of the uh, like the timeline that this shroud went through. So as I said before, in 944, the Archdeacon Gregory Referendarius gave a sermon on Christ's burial cloth. That's what it was called in his sermon. And uh, this is actually supposed to be the first reference to the shroud. And he even said in there that you can not only see the figure of this face, but also the figure of a whole body. Now, uh, Referendarius uh, was, as I said, the... Archdeacon of Constantinople, which was in Istanbul, right? And Constantinople was sacked by the Knights Templar in the Fourth Crusade, and they stole a bunch of sacred artifacts. And the shroud was allegedly among those relics. Now, we don't hear about the shroud again until about 400 years later when it pops up from a knight named... So, excuse me, I'm probably going to butcher this, but Jeffwa de Charny, who was a devout knight of the Templar. He moved uh, the shroud to a monastery in Lirae, France. <laughs> Descharny ends up dying just a few months later in the war, maybe even a couple of years. I, I don't remember the exact timeline, but his widow then has the shroud moved, but it's on public display for a short period of time. Right. Okay. 
Uh, a century later, the shroud is then given to the House of Savoy. After a fire, it's moved to Turin, which also happens to be probably one of the most occult places on the planet, which is mysterious to me. And it's been there ever since. So it's been in Turin ever since, and this is why it gets its name, the Shroud of Turin, right? Right. Um, and now in the 1980s, the Catholic Church actually seizes ownership over this shroud. Uh, they design and decorate a chapel for it in the 1980s called the Chapel of the Holy Shroud. And in 1997, there is a, a, this mysterious fire that breaks out, and the fire almost destroys the shroud completely. The Catholic Church uh, then commissions a restoration of the shroud, and this is where everything starts to get interesting, because during the restoration, the backing is removed from the shroud, and researchers were able to go in and study it. Oh, now, okay. After, yeah. So, so, they, so, so, they removed, so there was a, a piece along the back of it? And so oh, they, that's my okay, understanding. Right. That's my understanding. And, and, you know, also this thing is, is, is lock and key. I mean, it's kept right. up tight, you know, it's held tightly by the, by anyone who, who has it. So after it's repaired, the Shrouse would, was placed on public display. And as I said before, it was visited by over 2 million people. And at this time, the shroud then undergoes a very careful testing and analysis. Uh, and the first recorded test of the shroud to go back in time a little bit actually happened in 1898. So a hundred years before this, there was a photo taken by an amateur photographer named Secondo Pia. And this might still be one of the most famous photos of the shroud to this day. Um, now, again, it's the negatives of the photography that we were looking at before is how you can see the image of Christ more clearly. Now this image and the negatives were thought to be um, doctored because how could this be real? And it's like an amateur photographer that takes the photo. But they were studied for a half a century, like at that time, and that, and no one could prove um, or rather debunk these images. So they were then declared legit, and then more research kind of happened. So in 1969 and 1978, uh, oh, sorry. So in 1969, it was studied a little bit. I'm just getting trying to make sure I get this right. And then in 1978, for five days only, scientists were granted 24-hour access to the shroud, and they worked around the clock to test and analyze this thing. So for five days, basically, no one slept. They're just studying this thing right. for five days. Now, right. again, the tests concluded that there were no artificial pigments contained within. The shroud image is the real form of a man, the scientists tested the bloodstains, tested positive for the hemoglobin and these other things. No one can understand how the image got there. And there's, of course, no way that the human body could be transposed onto a sheet the way that it was. Now, or so they say. Or so they say. And so this is where it actually starts to get really interesting because other scientists start like theorizing how this image could have gotten onto the shroud. You have to understand, we're talking about a shroud that has no evidence of being doctored at all. They can't find any evidence at all that this has been tampered with by a human being. And so now they're like, well, then how could this have happened? How could, could they have used some type of technology back in 33 AD to, to basically figure out a way to get this transposed onto a linen and then, you know, it gets passed down throughout history as just a big, gigantic coast. A hoax, rather. Excuse me. Right. So, Atlantean technology, man. <laughs> right. Something like that. Right, right. So 
some these scientists they start to argue that the only way the image could get onto the cloth is through radiation of some sort and then this leads to scientists like a guy named alexander belikov he theorized this is a russian guy he theorizes that only short and intense exposure to light or uv could have caused the transposition of this figure onto the linen right yeah and then and then john this is also interesting a bunch of researchers then agreed that light this is a unanimous agreeing a bunch of among a bunch of researchers that the light had to have come from above the cloth vertically displaying down onto the cloth in order for that to happen now that's that's an outside source of the body Okay, so also there are no sources of ultraviolet light strong enough on Earth to create the image. No sources. Like they're saying, they're talking about several billion watts, like in short intensities, would have happened in order to create that. Right, yeah. Very extreme, intense light that can have no, no known source on Earth. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, scientific understanding is limited by scientific understanding. <laughs> well said. Until it's not limited. <laughs> until a new device is figured out, until a new way is figured out. I mean, all this stuff, when, when I, you know, I, I really like to see the <clears throat> the science behind this and the progression of science behind anything. Because, because it really shows you over and over again that whatever's put forward with science is always a theory until something disproves it and and it it shows it shows literally the growth of of human mind in understanding in deepening understanding and so i find it really fascinating what they've been doing what they have been doing around this because it 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 progressively takes it into more and more of a crazy almost supernatural thing right yeah yeah, it's 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 really strange. And I think also strange is this is a confusing history that it went through. So we kind of covered that the only way this figure would have been transposed onto this is if there was some bursts of UV light, something like that. OK, now, um, the funny thing about the ultraviolet light theory is that it destroys the pen- potentiality that this shroud was created as a hoax in the 13th century. Okay, now there was some carbon dating that was done on the shroud. Now you have to understand that the shroud is being moved around in the th- in the 13th century or the or the the 12th century, whatever. Um, and is it sorry? It's the 14th century, I think, is when you're talking about the 1300s. Okay, so when you're we're talking about carbon dating, the carbon the guys that were doing the research basically took samples from the edges of the shroud and the edges of the shroud, like let's say this thing was rolled up or whatever, would have been the ones that were scraping against things from the 12th or the 13th century. So in 2002, they took samples from the edges of the shroud. And so what the researchers found is that the carbon dating, they carbon dated this this shroud back to the 14th century, essentially, somewhere around there. 
but what they what they what other researchers who later came to look at different parts of the shroud found that is if you take samples from the edges there is this thing called the vanilla vanillin i think it's called in the edges and then in the center there is none of that substance okay and that that this basically shroud if you if you were to carbon date from the center of the material in the shroud and you were take you were to take the substance from the middle and from the edge it's two very different time periods that you're getting information from right so, so so what you're saying is like that the middle of the shroud was not exposed to whatever was happening throughout the centuries exactly got it and so the, the these these people that tried to debunk the shroud then ended up getting debunked right and then right. we've got another extremely interesting theory that came about in around 2000 two from a guy named Giulio Fonti of the University of Padua. Okay, so he basically said that the cause of the shroud's image was electrostatic discharge. Corona discharge happens. That's called corona discharge. And it happens when electricity discharges into the air due to a high voltage or something like that of ionization in the air due to a conductor and they actually think that the conductor was Jesus. Okay, now, his assertion, Fonti, his assertion was that the only way that this image could imprint the shroud was if the corona discharge occurred between the subject and the linen, which I think I agree with. Like, when they were saying that this light was coming from above, I was like, that doesn't make any sense, because how would you get this image onto right the linen right 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 and so scientists of course were baffled how the corpse could have been exposed to such electricity like how could the corpse have been a conductor basically right right you know they were talking about jesus being some of these researchers were talking about jesus being some kind of conductor well an earthquake hit jerusalem in 33 a.d it was actually April 3rd, I think, 33 AD. And some of these scientists had theorized that nuclear emissions from the earthquake combined with, I think, this coronal discharge from Jesus's body together would have been the, the recipe of, of elements that could have created the transposition of the body of Jesus. Interesting. Well, that's really fascinating. That's really fascinating. I mean, you know, earthquakes, people see earthquake lights, take photos of them, shimmering waveforms in the sky before an earthquake. <clears throat> and that's like caused by the plates rubbing together. They'll create this electromagnetic discharge. Um, that's interesting. That's very interesting. So, you know, when we, when we, we've looked at the Shroud of Turin um, many times um, and we've looked at other things. And so when we look at the Shroud of Turin, what we have, like just straight up what we show in the data, right? We, 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 we literally do have a subject that's laying on a slab of rock because, you know, we task on like, how did the Shroud form? Right. How was this formed? How was the imagery formed on that? And and when you task on something like this, it's actually really easy to quickly come to a conclusion of fake or not fake. 
When you get into the not fake side, it becomes a little bit more difficult to explain. But the fake side's easy to explain. Now, if we got that it was fake by any degree, which it's not fake by any degree, we would have somebody working on it, painting it, or using some kind of source in order to create that. Nothing of the sort. We literally have physical data, physical representation of a person laying on a rock slab in a dark space, cave, it's a cave. And, and this subject is going through a transformation where the aggregates of, of their physicalness is dissolving back into primordial energy. And in this process, the subject begins to turn bright white, completely, totally bright white light, which causes this imprint on the, on the, on the linen that's covering the subject. Okay. So, so this is described as a electromagnetic charge, huge electromagnetic output, uh, as well as like UV radiation, all sorts of different particles because, because the subject's in a process of the body transforming. And it's literally as the mind leaves, as the mind basically becomes everything because of a person who's had a very strong spiritual practice in their whole life, it, ca it can cause that type of a transformation, right? And so this is something that can happen. Now, on the other side of this, you have... Okay, let's just like talk about the um, the Gospels of St. Thomas real quick, which is a heretical gospel, which showed up, I think, like what most people refer to is is has been was found in like the 1945 or so uh, in ha Nag Hammadi, Egypt, um, where it's about it's like these treasure hunters were digging through and they, they were looking for stuff that they can sell and they found these little bound up pieces of paper. And so the gospel of Thomas mainly comes out of that. That's like the big, the big one that people point to. And he was a saint. So they called him St. Thomas, right? The Catholic church called him that, but there are gospels that they, that they don't put in because they either contradict or they go in a direction that the church didn't want. Not comfortable with. Right. So they're heretical. And, and this is actually what Gnostic Christianity will grab onto. Right? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why, why was he considered a saint if his gospels were heretical? It, it could have been before, uh, before, because he was known to be one of the disciples ah. of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples. And, and his name in Greek is actually, uh, it means twin. So some people think perhaps that he was a twin of Jesus. Yeah. Oh. Interestingly. Yeah. 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 Um, well, couldn't I, I have no idea. Couldn't have been twin in spirit rather than. It could be twin in spirit. It could be maybe he looked like him, um, but I guess it was just a term that they used for him. That was like you know part of his name. Um, so, so, so in the Gospel of Saint Thomas, it starts off literally the, like the first line. It's about 114 lines. And they're like sayings of Jesus that he had recorded. The first line is. Whoever discovers the interpretations of these sayings will not taste death. Okay, so that's the first line. And then later on, it goes on to say, 
well, the followers asked him, you know, how do we enter the kingdom, right? So, you know, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of nirvana, whatever you want to call it. Um, Jesus says the two have to become one, uh, the inner like the outer, the outer like the inner, the upper like the lower, the male and female into a single one. So what, what, he's, what he's talking about here is moving out of non-duality, right? He, moving into non-duality, sorry. He's talking about the dualistic thinking mind, which this is like literally literature that comes out of the East, right? Oh, yeah. Because this is, I mean, this is in, in Buddhist sutras. This is all what it's talked about. In order to enter nirvana, in order to become liberated, this is what you do. Now, in the last years of St. Thomas's life, where did he go? Well, he went to India. There are records of him dying in India, being martyred in India. And what was he doing? Well, he was going back to where Jesus was practicing, where he learned of this stuff and the practices. Now, let's take it a step further here and go into Tibetan Buddhism. So we've looked at things that happen in Tibetan Buddhism, primarily the rainbow body. So if you know about the rainbow body, it's a specific technique that comes out of Dzogchen practice where, where when they die, they dissolve mm. through light into a rainbow body. And there are purportedly some photographs of this. Um, there are instructions on how to do it. It's very clear on the steps on what happens to a person when they die, whether they are a spiritual practitioner or not. And, and you know, according to Tibetans and people who have researched this, even Catholic priests have researched the rainbow body as being something that could be the same thing as what Jesus went through with the Shroud of Turin. And so, so what happens when, you know, we remote view that, we get the same data. It's the same data across the board as the Shroud of Turin and how that was made. Yes. And so you trace this, you look at, you look at um, St. Thomas, one of the disciples, the Gnostic texts who take from uh, what St. Thomas wrote, that takes it into a practice that goes into meditation, deep meditation, what Jesus said specifically. Well, and, and it was never specified what was meant by prayer or meditation. This is why when that comes up, you know, you were telling that bizarre story of someone coming up to you telling you, you know, this right. is satanic or something with meditating, but it's like, well, what do you think prayer is? I mean, you're talking about, there is no delineation between prayer and meditation. Of course, if you're meditating all the time and you're focusing, like some, sometimes you're not trying to think you're just concentrating and well a lot of prayers is is literally for the gain of something right you know That's it's true. for gaining something on the material an intention realm right mm -hmm. whereas meditation's not that it's a little bit different than that but yeah they can like and like be the same with with the concentrating of the mind for a specific purpose so it would be a level of meditation um so so when you look at um these gospels that are heretical, like this one, for instance, Jesus is talking about basically a Eastern practice 
or well, it's not an Eastern practice, but the ideas are the ideas are. And and when we look at actually what he practiced and where he got his practice from, it goes into this stuff. It goes into the more Eastern ideas that we place it Eastern. It's not Eastern, but, but that's where it came from. And so he did spend time in that area. And then at the end of um, St. Thomas's life, he went to India, right? He went to India where Jesus originally, you know, had his enlightenment experience or whatever. And so you get into the Tibetans, they're doing the same thing as what the Shroud of Turin created there. And the process is basically through remote viewing data and what they said, it all lines up where the process is this, it is like the, the primordial elements of the body going back to source, disintegrating into source through a practice that when you die, you, it's like it takes about three days or so. And that's why they don't touch the body. They leave the body alone. Because in that practice, the mind is still within the body and it's condensing and focusing itself. If a person has led a very strong meditative practice in their life. And at the, that point where they are ready to leave the body. I mean, some of these guys, like even after like pulse is gone, they're clinically dead. Their heart area is warm for like three days. And then after that, it's gone. Some of these guys begin to shrink, like their bodies shrink. And there's like actually a relic of one of the one of one of the uh, llamas. I think it was a llama whose body's like this big, with a head on it, because because all of the elements of the body are are going back to primordial right. source energy. And there's different things that can happen with this. That can happen. Um, some are reported to completely disappear like Jesus did yeah. with maybe just fingernails or hair left behind. Um, some are reported to just once they die, there's rainbows, sort of electromagnetic frequency in the air that people see uh, right around the time of their death. So this is actually a practice. And Jesus knew of this practice. And, and it, it, it takes its steps back to where he learned it. And they still practice this there today. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. So we've got, we've got, um, <clears throat> you know, Jesus called it the resurrection. We've got the resurrection happening. This is why when the soldiers went into the tomb three days later, they were shocked to find no body there because there were guards outside of the tomb, making sure that nobody exited the tomb. And so, you know, his prophecy of what would happen to his body happened. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is this is this is literally something that people can do if they really deeply involve themselves in a spiritual practice, which is not something that the church in general or some churches in general would want to stay. They just wouldn't want to say this. But this is a this is something that goes on today. Yeah, and there were some there were even some books that we had encountered in our research that where some of the saints, the Christian saints talked about reincarnation. Right. But these parts were were stricken and not allowed to even come near the what's considered the Christian canon because it would right. change too much. Right. Um and I think that's a shame because it is just causes a lot of misunderstanding and I think um arguments between spiritual practices that are generally positive. 
And, well, you know, it's you interesting. Know? Like when I lived in a Zen center for years and, yeah. and during my time that I was there, some people like, for instance, a, um, a Jesuit priest who was in a monastic order, um, came to spend time there and, and learn the practice. Because when you get down to it, like, like it's just a practice. It's not, people like to say it's a religion, but at the core of it is literally just a practice of meditating. And you're not, not meditating on anything except for yourself. And, and, and at a certain point, no matter who it is, like these, these people sometimes would come through to try to understand their religion further through the practice of this deep meditation, which they could do there. And so there's like, when you get into people who are truly spiritually seeking, mm -hmm. they're going to, there, there is no like, this is bad, this is good. There is none of that because that is like literally what Jesus is talking about in, in the gospel of St. Thomas of dualistic thinking, good, bad is the thing that is going to stop you from going to the kingdom of heaven. You have to dispense with it. And this is the very basis of all deep spiritual meditative practice that comes out of the, the East. Well, and yeah, and what's meant by that, right? Like <laughs> you could you could say, well, then there's no evil and there's no good. And that's not, I would think, what's being said here. Like when no, you think about what's being said. No. Yeah. No, it's like when you're going through things in your life and you're looking at like, this is a bad thing. This is a good thing. You could easily look at this bad thing and be like, this just destroyed me. Like I'm, I feel awful. You know, I lost all of this stuff, but sometimes these things can be arranged in your path in order for you to elevate. And so what we see, what we human beings look at as a bad thing could end up being the very thing that lifts you up over the hardship that that comes on as being a human right. being. And I think the, these things are like critical, right? I think especially if you're studying spirituality and, 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 and you're, you're trying to elevate yourself that you have to dispense with these <laughs> ideas that keep you from using the hardships that you have in your life in order to elevate over them. I look at Jesus's whole life. Like it was a, it was a massive hardship, like going right. through, you have to carry your own cross to your crucifixion, your hands nailed on there and get put on basically like a satanic cross that kills you, your human body. And then you, your prophecy is basically, you know, realized after right. this. Right. Uh, I mean, we're talking about hardship that most people can't imagine. And you've got different, different people that have gone through things that are that are similar you know right. and i'm not trying to compare people i'm just saying in general you know right right well you know it's like that old chinese story you know that i don't maybe you don't know it it's it's uh there are these people that live in a village and uh, there's a father and son in there and the father and son capture a wild horse and the village people say oh it's so great you captured the horse how great and the father says maybe so maybe not and then the next instance, the son's riding the horse, falls off, breaks his arm. Everyone says, oh, how horrible. He broke his arm on your new horse. He says, maybe so, maybe not. You know, maybe it's good, yeah. maybe it's bad. I don't know. Next instance is that the army comes through and, and conscripts all of the uh, younger males, except for his son, because, you know, he had a broken arm. And they say, oh, how fortunate all of ours were taken, but yours wasn't. How fortunate for you. And he says, maybe so, maybe not. And it goes on and on like this. It's like the judgments yeah. that we make create our own suffering. 
Yeah. 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 And I mean, if you can use those things, nothing can stop you. I mean, it's right. pretty, pretty amazing if you think about it, you know, if you look at the, the accumulation of, or the, you know, amalgamation of different um, examples that we have, you know, there's a lot of hope that you can get from, from difficult things that happen to you. It, it takes a lot of, I mean, perseverance, but, um, but yeah, wow. Uh, I think we're going to have to end this episode um, here, but this was a awesome episode and I hope you guys in, uh, at home enjoyed this. And if you have any questions, please definitely put them below. This was by no means meant to be uh, the end all of this conversation revolved around the Shroud of Turin and or Jesus's life or any of the historical events that took place. This is just a conversation and we'd love to hear from you guys. So please leave your comments below. Uh, John, thanks so much for being with us. And for all of you out there, we hope you guys thought that this episode was as out of this world as we did. <laughs>